Uh, I uh, really uh, appreciated Dave's comment about 1981. I uh, myself felt like the Calvinist that fell down the stairs and got up and brushed himself off and said, well, I'm glad to get that one out of the way. Uh, <clears throat> 82 has uh, got to be better. I, uh, when I was in high school, I had a coach who was a retired uh, naval officer, and uh, he was just a dandy combination of uh, toughness and concern for uh, kids. And I remember one year having a particularly bad year and going into the office to talk to him. And after we chatted a while, Coach Hightower got up and walked around to the front of the desk and put his arm around me, and he said, Roper, he said, uh, or actually, he called me Spider. That was my name back then, because uh, I had such skinny legs. Everybody called me Spider. And uh, his comment was, Roper, you uh, you have a lot of potential. And that's all he said. And there was this sort of ponderous silence afterwards, and I uh, got the point, and that basically has been my philosophy of life ever since. I have a lot of potential. Uh, however, I discover that... Uh, that I rarely am able to measure up to my potential. I have high ideals, but uh, fall short. And perhaps that's your experience as well. And uh, your memories as you look back over 1981. A lot of uh, high ideals, aspiration, uh, desire to be the kind of man or woman that God has called you to be, but uh, failure along the way. Well, I, I have a bit of encouragement and direction for the coming year, and it's found in Second Peter chapter 1. I'd like to read through a couple of paragraphs in this opening section of Second Peter and comment on Peter's words. Second Peter, verse 1, chapter 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, that is, through his glory and goodness, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desire. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never fall and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter begins by introducing himself as a servant and apostle of our Lord Jesus Christ, and uh, this is, of course, the Simon Peter that we know well from the Gospels, the uh, 
fishermen whom the Lord called to uh, fish for men. Uh, he was quite elderly when he wrote this book. It's possible that uh, the book was written months or perhaps even weeks before he was put to death. He was crucified, as far as we know, in Rome. He uh, says later in, in the book that uh, the Lord had made clear to him that uh, he was going to have to put aside his body in verse 13 and 14. So he knew that that was imminent. This uh, then represents the sort of last will and testament. These are Peter's last words. And as someone has said, last words are always lasting words. These are important words. Peter, in some sense, is summarizing what he has been saying to the church over the years. Paul is dead by this time. And uh, Peter has uh, uh, risen to a place of ascendancy in the church. And he's writing to Christians all over the Roman Empire. This is one of the so-called general epistles written not to a particular church, but a kind of cyclical letter that was uh, intended to be read in all of the churches. And uh, Peter, in effect, is saying, this is what I want to say to the church. Of all the things that I may have said over the past, these are the most important things. He uh, writes, according to verse 1, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. In other words, he's writing to Christians. Those who through the right doing of God have received a faith as precious as ours. The ours here, the, the pronoun refers to the apostles. You may have felt from time to time that the apostles had, a, had an edge on us an advantage on us because they were with the Lord. But uh, Peter here is saying, in effect, that the faith that we have is the same faith that the apostles had. Exactly. As a matter of fact, that's what makes us Christian, is because we believe what the apostles believe, what it means to be a Christian. The Lord taught the apostles, and the apostles in turn teach us through their writings, and if we believe what the apostles believe, then that makes us Christian. So if someone comes uh, knocking on your door and they claim to be a, a guru from Peru who has the latest word, a new revelation from God, you listen to them. And uh, though they may call themselves Christian, if what they say does not coincide with what the apostles said, they are not Christian. I suppose we can call ourselves anything we want to, and we can believe anything we want to, but we can't really call ourselves Christians unless we define ourselves in the terms that Jesus and the apostles used to define Christian faith. It's just that simple. So it doesn't make a difference how persuasive or how good people are. If they do not say what the apostles say, they are not Christian. We need to know this ourselves. We need to teach this to our students. Very often they go off to school and, and perhaps for the first time encounter a, a gracious, loving, thoughtful, kind, socially sensitive, non-Christian, who may be, in some sense, more Christian than some of the Christians than they, than they know. And that's upsetting. But it uh, doesn't make any difference. Our behavior ought to reflect what we believe, but the real issue is our belief. Do we believe what the apostles believe? If we do, then we're Christians. But if we don't, then we're not. You know, what Paul is, or Peter is saying in this first verse is that uh, 
these are Christians that he's writing to because they have a faith just like the apostles. And then a brief word of salutation in verse 2, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. This is the sort of salutation that you would find in any letter of this particular uh, period in history, A to B greeting and then some sort of salutation. If you got a letter from the bank saying that your mortgage was was overdue, it would begin the same way, grace and peace be to you, pay up. <laughs> this is the standard uh, literary form of that day and what, what struck me for the first time as I read through Second Peter is that uh, this revelation came through the Roman mails. Perhaps the Roman mail was better than the United States mail, but uh, in some sense it's some indication of God's passion to communicate, the humanness, if, if you please, of God that he got right down on our level in order to speak to us. He didn't speak out of the sky through uh, some sort of cosmic uh, public address system. He got right down where we are and he communicates in normal modes of communication. That's the way God is. He wants to let us know the truth. Not playing games with us. Not playing hard to get. Not hiding. He wants us to know his will. Plain speech. That's uh, the form that he uses. Then uh, in this introductory paragraph, verses 3 through 11, Peter says some interesting things about the call of the apostles. You'll notice an emphasis on the pronouns throughout this paragraph. His divine power has given us, that is, us apostles. We apostles have everything that we need for life and godliness. In verse 4, through these, that is through Christ's glory and goodness, he has given us, us apostles, his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. In other words, God revealed truth to the apostles. The apostles, in turn, revealed the truth to us so that we can have the same faith that they had. That's the way Peter is, is arguing. And notice what Peter says he was given. We apostles, we apostles, he says, have, were given through Christ's divine power everything we need for life and godliness. Everything we need. You believe that? Jeff Utes asked uh, Richie Spencer last Christmas what he wanted for Christmas, and Richie said everything, and uh, thought that was a very appropriate answer. And that's uh, really the way we ought to respond to God. What, what do you need? Everything. And God says, in effect, that's what I want to give you. Everything that you need for life and godliness. That's, that's the only guarantee we have. God does not promise to make us wealthy. He doesn't promise to keep us healthy. He just promises to give us everything we need to cope with life. Whatever demand we have to face, then there is an adequate supply out of his infinite resource to meet that demand. There's a counteracting supply for every pressure. Now, he doesn't say he's given us everything we need to know mathematics or history or chemistry or biology or any of those disciplines where the scriptures speak about those things, they're trustworthy, but that's not why the Bible was given, not why God revealed himself. He revealed himself so we could know how to cope with life. So we could be men and women as we know we should be. 
He wants us to be able to go through life with poise and dignity and quietness and rest, be manly and womanly. As someone once said they became a Christian, someone asked, asked them, why did you become a Christian? They said, I became a Christian in order to become a man. And, and that's what God does for us. He gives us everything we need for life and godliness. Now that ought to, in some sense, quell the restlessness that we have for something else. We always think that there ought to be something else. If I just had a, another vehicle that ran better or more smoothly, or a better job, or if my nose were smaller, or my feet bigger, or whatever, it's something, anything, just something more. But uh, Peter tells us that when they came to know the Lord, he gave them everything that they needed for life and godliness. As David puts it in the shepherd song, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. There are really only two alternatives in life. If God is our shepherd, then we don't, uh, we don't want for anything that we really need. But uh, conversely, if we want something more, then God is not our shepherd. Now that's what Peter wants us to know in the beginning, that whatever Demand is placed upon us in this coming year, 1982. We have everything we need to be the kind of people that God has called us to be. We can cope with life. And we know how to be properly related to God and to be God-like. He says all of this came to them through the knowledge of the one who called them by his own glory and goodness. That was what was so impressive about the Lord when they first met him. He was... He was good. He was a good man. But uh, more than that, they saw the glory of God in him. John says, We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, it was somewhat like a tent. And uh, when the wind would blow, the tent would flap, and you would see the, uh, the, the lantern underneath the tent. There were occasional displays through Christ's humanity of, of his glory. They saw that he was both God and man. He was fully human, he was fully man, but he was also God. And yet he wasn't, uh, this wasn't a, a bizarre combination. Throughout history, there have been people who appeared as God-men, but there was, there was something always strange and bizarre about them, but there was that wasn't true of Jesus. He was exactly as you would expect God to be if he were here on earth. And that was so attractive, so winsome to these apostles. They were they were drawn to him and they came to know him and as a result he gave them everything they needed for life. But uh, more than that, in verse four, through these things, that is through his own character and goodness he has given us his very great and precious promises. That's the uh, scriptures that he's referring to. The New Testament, basically. Jesus told the apostles, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will lead you into all truth. The apostles were able to speak and write with the same authority that Jesus himself, with which Jesus spoke. They spoke for him. And their words were his words. And uh, that's the New Testament. 
all of the New Testament has the, the same authority that Jesus had. And they're promised that what the New Testament is. It's one promise after another. Most of us are used to promises that are broken. We live in a world where uh, people don't keep promises, by and large. They say, I'll uh, love you for better or worse, but, but they don't. They walk out when things get, get tough. And uh, politicians make uh, promises that they don't uh, fulfill. In fact, someone said that's why America has endured for 200 years, because politicians never keep their promises. We're used to that sort of thing. But uh, God never, never breaks his promises. He's the God who cannot lie. Do you know why people get so disillusioned by life? Do you know why, uh, why the 40-year itch sets in? It's because the world can't keep its promises. Secular society tells you, you know, you, you go to school this long, you get this degree, you get this job, you can make that much money, then you can be happy. And you spend the better part of your life pursuing that uh, promise and it doesn't pan out. And people are empty, disillusioned. You know, if, if you tell your kids tomorrow morning, we're going to go to the zoo tomorrow. I don't know why anybody would go to the zoo in this kind of weather, but if you just you, know, you tell them, that's what we're going to do tomorrow. And uh, then tomorrow you get up and you say, oh, I don't want to go, but we'll go tomorrow. And then Tuesday morning you get up and you say, oh, it's, it's a bad day. We're not going to go today. We'll go tomorrow. And you do that for a week or so, and you can't get that kid excited about anything. And that's exactly what happens to us. That's why people are so bored and jaded and empty and disillusioned by life. That's why people take their lives, because there's nothing left living to live for. They've, they've arrived, and they have everything they've ever wanted, and they don't want anything that they have, and there's no place left to go. That's why Alexander the Great drank himself to death, because there were no more worlds to conquer. He'd arrived, he did, but he didn't want any of it. And you see, that's all because of broken promises. But God never breaks his word to us. Bob Dylan says, God don't make promises that he don't keep. What he says he'll do, he'll do. And if he tells us he's given us everything that we need for life, he means it. He means it. If he says he's coming back and he's going to set things straight, he means it. Those are the promises that uh, are passed on to us. And Peter says it's because of these promises that we now can participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. The word for corruption here means ruin or decay. And uh, Peter says that the world ruins us because of its insistence, insistence on the part of the world that what we desire will fulfill us. The uh, term that's translated in my translation, evil desires, is just a word for passion or, or desire, not even evil desires. It's just wanting something. That's what corrupts life. We want something more. We're never fulfilled. We think, if I just have something more, then I'll be happy. And we get to something more, and it turns to ashes in our hands. And Peter says, 
the gospel has enabled us to escape from all of that because we now are partakers of the divine nature. In Peter's day, the, the Greek thinkers, the moral philosophers of that day, were saying that every man had a divine nature. He had a spark of, of deity within him, and people are still saying that today. It comes from the East, but it's just very much a part of Western thinking. But uh, that's another promise that that uh, doesn't pan out, because we don't become godlike. When we draw on that power, there's nothing there. But Peter says we can indeed become a sharer in the nature of Christ, a partaker of his, of his nature, if we respond to the gospel. That's what the Bible means by being born again. We receive a new nature. We receive the nature of Christ. That becomes our true nature. For myself, I don't think we have two natures, an old nature and a new nature. I think we only have one nature because nature means what we are naturally. What we are naturally by nature now is a son of God. And therefore we need to act like sons of God. You see, it's, it's that nature that makes it, makes it possible to act like sons of God. If we uh, merely appeal to people to shape up, be more moral, and do what's right, it, would, it, just, it just frustrates us because we all know what we ought to be. The problem is where do you find the power to be? what we know we ought to be. Something has to change. And it's the gospel that changes us. When we come to know Jesus Christ, he comes to live within us. That's not a figure of speech. That's a reality. Christ is not off here somewhere outside of us helping us. He actually comes within to live. And that's the new birth. And that's what makes it possible for us to be what God has called us to be. Without him... John says, we can do nothing. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. That's okay. When Jesus said, be perfect, he meant it. He meant that we must go in for the full treatment. It's hard, but the sort of compromise we are all hankering after is harder. In fact, it's impossible. It may be hard for an egg to turn into a bird. It would be a jolly sight harder for it to learn to fly while remaining an egg. We are like, like eggs at present, and you cannot go on indefinitely being just an ordinary decent egg. We must be hatched or go bad. Now that's the problem. You know, we're just trying to be good, ordinary, decent eggs. <coughs> and it doesn't work. We have to be hatched. We have to be changed. That's the new bird. When we give our hearts to the Lord Jesus, we become a new creature, a new creation. And then all things are possible. That's the power for the Christian life. Without it, we can do nothing. So he says, through the promises given to us by the apostles, we participate in the divine nature, we share in common the nature of Christ, and we escape the corruption that is in the world caused by evil desires. It's our, our wants, our desires for other things that ruin the world for us. For this reason, in verse 5, he says, Make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. 
These are the things we ought to desire in 1982. We just sang, I want to be a righteous man, and that's what it means to be a righteous man. That's the goal that we ought to pursue. That's the only goal that will satisfy. That's the only desire that won't ruin us. Everything else will. Nothing wrong with wanting a bit more as long as the first priority of our life is to want what God wants for us and what he wants is godly character. The pursuit of God and God-likeness. And that's what will satisfy us. That's the only thing that will satisfy us. There are a couple of interesting things to note about this uh, list of characteristics. The first is that uh, this sort of thing was common in, in Peter's world. It was a, a device for teaching. Uh, very often lists were given to, uh, to uh, students and they were required to memorize them and this is apparently that, that sort of thing. I don't think that Peter means that we are to add sequentially one thing to the next. He's saying that these are all qualities that we need to seek equally. And uh, thirdly, what is most interesting to me about this list is that these are the sort of things that that even uh, non-Christians agree are good. I don't know of anyone who can read this list of characteristics and say, I don't want to be this sort of person. This is what we all want to be. The question is, how can we do it? Well, it can only be done through participating in the divine nature. There is a power that makes possible uh, this sort of change in, in character. Now let's look at the list. Peter says, make every effort to add to faith goodness. In other words, he begins with faith, where we always begin. That's the foundational characteristic. Now, Peter is not saying that we somehow have to learn how to believe things that are impossible to believe. Faith is not believing incredible things. It's simply coming to the conviction that, that Jesus Christ is who he says he is and he can do what he said he can do. We may even have doubt in the midst of our faith. There are a number of things that I don't understand about Scripture. I may never understand these things. They puzzle me. There are things about Christ that I don't understand. And there are even times that I have real doubt. I haven't figured everything out yet. And sometimes I'm, I'm tempted to disbelieve the whole thing. But I'm comforted in the realization that the apostles felt the same sort of doubt. When the Lord told them to go to the mount to meet him after the uh, resurrection, it says they went, they did what he said to do, but they doubted. It says, actually, the word means they were ambivalent. They weren't sure. They didn't know what was going on. And I feel that way at times. But I'm going to follow the Lord anyway because I'm convinced that he is who he claimed to be and he can do what he says he can do. That's what faith is. And I find that as I pursue the Lord, I can believe more and more of what he said is true. It's like my relationship with Carolyn. If I saw Carolyn kissing another man, uh, I would probably want to ask her some questions, <laughs> but I would not doubt her faithfulness, because I know Carolyn, and I know her relationship to me, and I know her love for me, and I would not immediately question her faithfulness. Now that's the sort of faith that I think we're called upon to, to have in the Lord. We don't have all the answers yet. I have a lot of things I want to ask him. 
a lot of things on the shelf that I've just had to put away for a while and not worry about because they bother me too much if I take them down and try to sort them all out. But that doesn't affect in any way my relationship to the Lord. I can walk on with him and trust him because I've found him to be reliable. He does what he says he can do. He means it. His promises are true. And that's where we begin, with that sort of faith. And Peter says, we add to that foundational characteristic goodness. Just plain old goodness. Now, that's a word that we've overworked, you know. We've worn it out. Good doesn't mean anything anymore. I was, uh, this last week, I was in another city and, uh, talking to a man in his shop and it turns out that we have a mutual friend and his comment was, so-and-so is really a good old boy. And uh, what went through my mind is, uh, actually, that the man is a crook. <laughs> but uh, that's, a, you know, that's, that's the sort of thing we say all the time. So-and-so is good. He's a good man. He's a good old boy. Good doesn't mean anything anymore. Uh, someone once said to Jesus, good teacher, what good thing should we do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus interrupted him and he said, why do you call me good? There's no one good but God. And some have interpreted that to mean that Jesus is, is, is disclaiming deity, saying, you know, only God is good, why do you call me good? But that's not what he's saying at all. He's challenging his concept of goodness. Because this man was using it as we often use it. Good teacher, good man. And we have no idea of the, of the meaning of the term. And I don't have to tell you, incidentally, what it means to be good. You just know. You know. It means to be honest, and just, and fair, and gracious, and kind, and courageous, and thoughtful, and generous, and giving, and helpful, and sacrificial. And you can add to that any number of characteristics that in your mind, no, suggest goodness. Now, Peter says that's the kind of people we ought to be. That's what we ought to aspire to in 1982. At the end of 1982, can someone look at us and say, that's a good person? Uh, Brian uh, Fisher was telling me that uh, he got a copy of the green sheet from San Francisco, from the sports page from San Francisco Chronicle, and they were interviewing some of the 49ers in anticipation of the game this afternoon, and one of the players, I've forgotten who it was now, was asked uh, what his goal in life was, and his comment was, uh, at the end of this season, I would like for people to say, that's a godly man. Really striking. And that ought to be our aspiration, not to make it to the top of our company or to amass a certain number of dollars or to necessarily uh, gain fame and fortune, but at the end of the, of the year to be able to say, well, I have grown in goodness. I'm a better person than I was before. And then he follows uh, goodness with knowledge. That's interesting. You don't think of knowledge as a virtue, but it is. He's talking about knowledge of of Scripture, knowledge of Jesus Christ. In the last uh, statement in Second Peter, he says, Grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
That's what he's talking about. We grow to ceilings in all uh, all areas. You know, we only grow so tall or so smart. But here's here's one uh, here's one area of growth where there's no limit. We can keep on growing in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Are you spending time in the Word? I'm not talking about being taught by other people, but are you and I spending adequate time getting to know God through his word? That's how we see him. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you uh, search the scriptures because you think that they will give you eternal life, but they are they which testify of me. Are we looking at the word in order to know Christ and growing up in that relationship? takes time. Takes a little discipline. I find that I do basically what I want to do and what I know is important. I eat three meals a day generally. I sleep at night. I, I take time to do the things that I feel are crucial. Do we really feel it's crucial this year to grow in knowledge? Goodness, knowledge, self-control in our, of our tempers, of our tongues, our sexual passions. We tend to excuse ourselves by saying, well, I'm, I have a terrible temper because I'm Irish. Or uh, I have strong sexual passions because I'm Latin or I'm hot-blooded or I'm cold-blooded or, or whatever. But that's, uh, that's a bunch of nonsense. You know, we can control ourselves. You can. You know you do. If you're in a fight with your wife and you're angry and somebody telephones, you don't pick up the phone and shout at the person in the telephone. You control yourself. Last night, or night before last, I got angry at something and I was so frustrated I took my reading glasses and threw them clear across the room and broke them all to pieces. That's why I have these nice new brown ones this morning. You know, I wouldn't do that in front of you. I would be embarrassed to stand up here and throw my glasses and display my temper in that way. I can control myself. I chose not to. We can choose to be self-controlled. Our passions are not running rampant. Self-control, perseverance. You can't uh, practice any of these characteristics without sooner or later running into uh, the need for this one. This is obedience over the long haul. Christian life is not a sprint. It's an endurance run. And I, I am less and less inclined to... Uh, uh, attribute much uh, value to people who, who are good starters. It, I think real faith is revealed in, in endurance, hanging in there over the long haul. Hebrews says it's by faith and patience that we inherit the promises. Abraham had to wait 25 years to get the promised son. And we want it now. We want the quick fix. We want the experience that does it all right now without seeing that it's faith over the long run that is the real indication of the depth of that faith. I heard uh, someone tell me a month or so ago of a, an incident in uh, Winston Churchill's life. He was asked to go back to his prep school to speak, private school. And uh, he very graciously did so. This was in wartime. Address these young boys. 
And uh, his speech consisted of 11 words. He said, never give up. Never give up. Never, never, never give up. And he sat down. Now that's what Peter means. Never give up. You give up on your marriage. So it's tough. Don't walk out. So your job is difficult. Don't give up. Don't quit. Keep moving. It's through faith and patience that we inherit the promises. And then he adds to this godliness. That's just another word for worship. Practicing the presence of God in our life. Giving thanks for who and what he is to us through the day. And to godliness, brotherly kindness. just means being kind to your brother. Simple thing like that. That's the sort of thing no one notices. We've had a lot of brothers in our house this past uh, Christmas season. For the first time in a year, all three of, of our sons are home. And they've had to practice a lot of brotherly kindness. Sometimes they're not very kind. It's hard because nobody sees it. But that's one of the measures of the reality of our faith. Are we kind to one another? It ought to jar us when we see brothers and sisters within the family of God that can't get along, criticize one another, harsh and loving in their attitudes, cold and different. We need to be kind to one another. Forgiving, gentle. And then yearns with love. That's the kind of love that only God can express. The sort of unselfish love that drove Christ to the cross. And he says that if these qualities are in us and, and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Where did we ever get the idea? that the real test of our Christian faith is activity. The, the test seems to be how many classes we're teaching, how much we give, and the appeal is always to give and to go and to do and to show up every time the door of the church is open. And that's never, never the standard. The way we demonstrate the reality of our relationship to Jesus Christ is the kind of character that we display. You know, sometimes some of us, for one reason or another, just can't be active. Norma Spencer, for, for one, is going to be uh, literally strung out in her bed for the next three weeks. And traction is she can't go anywhere. She can't do anything. She can't, uh, she can't teach her women's class this week or perhaps for the rest of this uh, quarter. But that doesn't mean she'll be unfruitful and ineffective. Peter says, if you're not doing anything but these, you're effective. You may be home with a sick child all week, or you may have an infant, and you can't get out and do anything. You find it impossible to even share your faith. You haven't seen another human being more than three years old for a, for a whole day, but you still can be fruitful and effective. And conversely, Peter says, even if you doing all sorts of things, you're active in the church and you don't have these qualities, then you're nearsighted and blind and you've missed the whole point. That's what he's trying to say. So one result of having this sort of character is that we'll be fruitful and effective. And another in verse 10 is that it makes us fit for heaven. 
Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to, eager to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never fall. He doesn't mean to fall away from Christ. He doesn't mean to apostatize or to lose your salvation. The word means to, to err, to go astray. It's used in James in that, in that way on a number of occasions. Someone does not err in word. He's a perfect man. He needs to make mistakes. You'll, you'll be on target. You won't fall, you won't lose your way along the road. That's the point he's trying to make. You will never fall and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In other words, everything that we experience is preparing us for heaven. What makes heaven heavenly is not that there are no tough circumstances there, it's that God's people are everything they're supposed to be. Cameron and I were reflecting this past week upon how on how difficult it's been with all of these people in our house. We've not only had our whole family there, we've had house guests and there have been all kinds of pressures on us and we really have not been very nice people sometimes. And we were thinking, my, when we get rid of all these people, then we can be nice again. <laughs> and that's sort of the way we think about heaven. When I get up there, there won't be any pressures and there will be nothing to fear so I can be courageous. And there won't be anyone who's quarrelsome, so I can be nice. But that's not, that's not what God is doing. We had to remind ourselves that we're not any nicer when these pressures aren't on us. We're the same people. What will make heaven heavenly is that God's people will be godly. Now, it is true that when the Lord comes back or we go to be with him, he will change us. We'll be just like him. But throughout all of our life, He's using every circumstance of life to prepare us for that moment. He expects us to grow. Now, what I would like to suggest for 1982 is that you practice these things. There are eight of them. Put them on your shaving mirror or your cosmetic mirror or your dashboard or someplace that you can see them every day and start out practicing these eight characteristics. There are three things that you will discover. The first is that you will fail. A lot. There's nothing like trying hard to realize how bad we really are. It makes us understand that we cannot bargain with God. We can't come and say, look how good I am. Because you can be assured of one thing. If you decide you're going to endure tomorrow, you won't. If you decide you're going to be kind to your brother this afternoon, something will happen that will cause you to be very unkind. But what this will do is throw you back on the grace of God. As you fail, don't be discouraged. Thank God for his forgiveness. Claim his grace to go on and know that you will make progress. You will grow in grace. God will begin to work his magic on you and you'll change. A number of years ago, I was watching an uh, interview on television in San Francisco with Pablo Casals, the great celloist, and I don't know, he must be in his 80s now, probably, 70s or 80s, and uh, he was asked uh, if he still practiced. Oh, yes, he said, I practice eight hours a day. And he said, you're the greatest celloist in the world. Why do you practice eight hours a day? He kind of wrinkled up his brow and he said, I think I'm getting better. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what you'll discover. You'll get better. You'll grow. 
And you will begin to become a virtuous person. You really will. You know, some of us do virtuous things. We do good deeds. There are other people who are good people. There's a difference. God is not interested merely in good deeds. He's interested in good people. I go up to the courthouse every once in a while, hang over the rail and watch people play racquetball, and I've discovered that there are some people who make good shots, but who are not particularly good racquetball players. And then there are some people who are good racquetball players. There's a difference. Now, through 1982, you may make a few good shots. That doesn't necessarily mean you're a good person, but you'll discover as you keep practicing these things that you will become better and better. And God will begin to change you into a good person. And that's what we need to pursue this year above everything else. That's the only goal that really amounts to anything. Nothing else matters. Our Lord tells us that if we seek Him and His kingdom and His righteousness, then everything else will be taken care of.